Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. Feel the fall tonight more than previous nights together. If you get cold, you can always close the windows a little bit if it's uncomfortable there. The sound of the trees, really lovely. It's amazing in this room and in Parkdale in general, for those of you who live here, you know this, although I think we sometimes forget it, how you can have the sound of the streetcar and the ambulance uh, punctuated by the sound of the tree and the leaves and sometimes a bird and um, swearing <laughs> then another bird my son woke up uh, yesterday morning um, he said there's, there's frost outside it's the first frost and uh, so I, I said, there's no way. Said, Come outside and look. I said, no, I'm still sleeping. So he has this new technique where he comes over and he goes like this to me, <laughs> which is a kind of torture. So anyways, we went outside in our underwear to look at the hood of the car. And um, he said, look, it's frost. So that's not frost, it's dew. <laughs> he said, it's not dew, it's frost. Don't you know the difference? don't you know the difference? <laughs> so I said, what's the difference between frost and dew? He said, um, dew falls on grass and frost falls on cars. <laughs> in, case, in case you didn't know that, um, he's an expert. <laughs> and he'll tell you so. And... Um, so I wanted to start with a, a poem by Soin, who's a, a Japanese uh, woman poet, of which uh, some of you might know. Um, it can be fairly rare, because a lot of uh, women in those traditions didn't really get published. So um, I'll read it to you. Settling, the white dew does not discriminate each drop its home. I'll read it one more time. Settling, the white dew does not discriminate. Each drop its home. So wherever the white dew falls, it's home. And what I love about this poem is the sense that the white dew falls on everything equally. 
It doesn't discriminate whether it's going to fall on the hood of a car or on a blade of grass or on the leaf of a tree. And um, I think this is an excellent description of our meditation practice, you know, is how our awareness can meet whatever is showing up um, with equanimity, not so much picking and choosing, pulling things apart, not creating so many um, um, misinterpretations that we then rely on and believe in, have faith in. Um, you know, I hope for those of you who are practicing and starting to really learn how to have a meditation practice that is continuous and effective, um, that in our meditation, you know, you're, I'd say most of the people in this room, I think those of you I know, are not sort of meditating to find the light. Carl Jung has a wonderful passage where he says, um, enlightenment does not come from imagining figures of light, but by making darkness conscious. I've always, I've always liked that passage. Um, Jack Cornfield says, um, after the ecstasy, the laundry. Um, so, not necessarily sitting down to find peak experiences, because certainly they happen, and they happen spontaneously. And a lot of times, you know, what we call mystical experiences actually happen um, not when we're sitting. And if you look in the Buddhist literature, most of the stories of enlightenment don't happen when someone's sitting. They happen just as they're getting up, or just as someone is lying their head down on a pillow. Right in that moment, not sitting up, not lying down. Right in between. And for those of you who've ever spent time practicing on retreat, um, certainly you know this, that usually the really deep insights happen at the end of a meditation session, or right when you're sitting down on a cushion, or in the first five seconds of an instruction. Um, Because sometimes we, we are striving in our meditation practice for a kind of experience. And so we don't see the quiet attachment that's humming away in the background, which is actually sometimes a really big unconscious groove for most of us because we think that a spiritual practice or meditation is supposed to give us something in return, like peace. And the paradox of meditation practice is on the line of awareness, it's going to bring both peace and exactly the opposite. And, you know, for most people, until it starts bringing the opposite, technique is not important. As you sit down and you can get fairly relaxed. Um, But we want to have a practice that's relevant to our lives so that we can put it to work in our relationships uh, with each other and with the earth and with the body and with all of these sounds. The dew is going to fall on the streetcar and on the bird's wing and in 
on the window, I was going to say in this room, uh, equally. Not discriminating. And I love how the first uh, word in that poem is subtly. Subtly. Um, I learned this week in Chinese that the, the character for the word um, cliché um, is the character of a nest. You can picture this image. For those of you that know a little bit of Chinese, you know that the characters are always so amazing because there's a phonetic piece, there's an etymological piece, and there's an image there. And so for the word cliché, the, the pattern is of a nest. And um, I thought this also really described our minds. That when our minds are operating in clichés, which is so much of the time, yeah, you know, I mean, when you really, for, I don't know, for those of you who've ever had this experience of actually stopping and seeing how almost all of your thinking is about you, Anybody? I mean, this could be exciting for some people, um, but I remember for me in sitting practice actually realizing that almost all of my thinking was about me and how sad that is, how much energy we put into, you know, superimposing ourselves into situations or referring whatever is going on back to me. And... Um, in a way, these are like little nests that are built, moment to moment. And all those twigs and branches are like associations, aversions, patterns of attachment, all the things we bring to each situation. We build these nests every moment, you know. And the word in Pali for this is papancha, which is the, the proliferated concepts, one on top of each other. Proliferated by what? Other concepts. that kind of build these nests um, and, you know, from my experience, you know, those nests are not really keeping me warm or safe or secure. They serve a purpose, but certainly they shut down more than they open up. And so we've been studying for the past few weeks the Yoga Sutra written by Patanjali um, over 2,000 years ago. And um, last week we explored all of the different... Um, patterns of mind um, that build these nests, that make these cliches. That, so our lives are like cliches. You know, I remember one time being on retreat, and when you're on retreat, you can be quite insane for days at a time. And for me, this one time, every time anyone said something, I had a song lyric for it, <laughs> and mostly like classic rock which was even more embarrassing. And uh, so I would hear a word in like a meditation instruction, and then I would just, all the songs with that word. And you can see the cliche after cliche. And I remember just sort of looking back and think, for an hour, all I've been doing is, you know, I don't know actually what any of the instructions were. They were just these words that were from songs. And um, we can do this for decades. <laughs> you know. So, um, 
Patanjali says, you know, for all of these chitta-vrittis, for all of these patterns, you can take out your, your notes if you want, because um, we're at line... Um, Uh, so Patanjali is saying that if you want to work with these patterns that um, interrupt um, stillness, that interrupt feeling of intimacy, a feeling of connection with what's actually showing up in our experience, um, then two things are needed. Um, abhyasa and vairagya um, practice and non-attachment practice and non-attachment so um, practice can mean many many different things there's a wonderful story of um, Basho on the pilgrimage being asked you know what is your practice these are great questions just in the history of practice literature Whenever you hear this question, it's like some part of us really wants, what is the secret practice? And so someone says to Basho, what is your practice? And Basho says, whatever is needed. Whatever is needed. So whatever is showing up in that experience, meeting that with equanimity. Um... So Patanjali lists, and we're going to go through them, different kinds of practice. Um, But he's also defining practice here, saying that practice is, um, the essence of practice is non-attachment. Non-attachment. And I don't know about you, but when I first heard the term non-attachment, what I thought was kind of indifference or aloofness or kind of being cold, you know? And I think many people who actually want to become cold um, are attracted to meditation practice because you can actually practice in a way that makes you not feel anything. And usually this works for three years, um, and then you fall apart. But I think a lot of people who don't want to feel anything are actually really attracted to meditation practice because you can just stay with your breath and kind of keep everything out. And I hope that one of the things you're learning here is that that's actually the inverse of what we're trying to do. Uh, Most of us who are learning some of these instructions, we're sitting with our eyes open. We're breathing. The um, sounds are coming and going. We don't have a really special environment here. It's only a little bit special. Um, so that we're opening up to the way life is happening, not to trying to find something in particular. And um, this requires non-attachment, but non-attachment to what? It's not being attached to view. Not being attached to needing a viewpoint. Now, we could talk about renunciation and about right livelihood and how maybe one can consume and how much you should have in your bank account and so on. The Buddha gave all kinds of instructions for using money. 
Like, for example, not having debt. Um, so uh, many of the, you know, large Buddhist centers, even now in the United States, have been built in the last century without any debt. Um, so, you know, that, that's one way of looking at non-attachment. And if you're interested in that, there's a book called Yoga for a World Out of Balance. And you should get it and read about that. Um, however, um, I think Patanjali is, he hasn't talked about ethics yet. And so I think he's getting at something a little more subtle, which is what most of us are primarily attached to. And maybe at the root of greed, and at the root of ill will, and at the root of jealousy, and the root of envy, and at the root of um, delusion, is actually being attached to a view. It's interesting working as a psychotherapist with people who are depressed, or people who've suffered from a lot of trauma, or people who are very anxious, that when you start going deep into the layers of all the nests, all the cliches in their experience, at bottom, usually people are really contracted around a story. Whether it's in the past or in the future, And it's hard to undo old patterns of um, psychological and even physiological habit without being able to let go of our perspective. And um, that's why relationship forces more people into therapy than anything. Because other people come up against our viewpoint and then we start suffering. And um, how to work with our view is a tricky thing. And one of the things that's really fascinating in meditation practice is you can actually constantly see not just thought patterns, which are the nests, but you can see the nests that you're nesting the nests in. It's like those Russian dolls, you know? (laughs) One in the other in the other. So I've said this a lot in the past month, but... In the practice, we're not just noticing what we're noticing, but we're noticing how we're noticing what we're noticing. Does this make sense? So in a way, there's no excuse for not being mindful. Because you can be mindful of tiredness, of anger, of jealousy, of greed, of hatred. You can be mindful of those states. Those states don't give you an excuse to check out. You can really open to anxiety. But if you come at the practice with a view saying, the goal of the meditation practice is to get out of this stuff, then your attitude will be aversion or condemnation of those experiences. And that's just in our own minds. I mean, interpersonally, it gets much more complicated. But if you can't do this with your own breath and sounds and your own mind, it's very hard to do this in relationship at a deep level. Because we're in such a reactive state that we're not actually attuned to what's happening. So Patanjali is saying... um, 
abhyasa and vairagya that we practice we practice and the core of the practice is non-attachment and for those of you that are practicing a long time I would add that then you practice non-attachment to your practice especially if you are breastfeeding or have little infants or whatever um, let it go for a while your formal practice anyways don't tell anybody I said that so non-attachment is the core of the practice so that means that the definition of non-attachment is intimacy right because if we're not attached to needing to have a viewpoint in this moment then connection shows up connection shows up I want to read a a passage from um, what's his name again? Ihab, is that how you pronounce his first name? I think so, yeah. Ihab Hassan who is a um, critical theorist from the University of Wisconsin thank you to Anna for this amazing essay um, called Literary Theory in an Age of Globalization um, which might not sound exciting to you but um, I just want to read this one passage here that he writes Um, I have stood frozen before certain objects in galleries around the world feeling that no experience I've had at the Metropolitan or Uffizi at Karnak or the Parthenon can help me cope with what appears before me. I don't simply mean the shock of the new. I also mean the profound and ultimately inexplicable threat of otherness. I also mean the paradoxical temptation of indifference. You end up in these situations asking yourself, do I really have to deal with this? Or do I care? That may be too much to ask. In the end, most of us, most of the time, will fall back on habit, hypocrisy, or the common bomb of indifference. When we have an aesthetic experience, when you go and see a film that captures you, one of the things that's happening in the aesthetic experience is, well, there are two things. The first is your, your nests, your perceptual habits are interrupted, right? The view that you usually come at something with is interrupted. I remember going to Buffalo to the Contemporary Art Museum there. Um, I forget what it's called. Albright Knox. Albright Knox. To see a, a show of Mark Rothko paintings. And I, have you ever seen a Mark Rothko painting in real life? Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not like in the books. They're huge, you know. And um, it was this one room where it was a long room, and there was one painting at the end of the room with benches along the side. And I turned the corner and I walked into the room and just, you know, this is what we're trying to do in the yoga practice, right? (laughs) And it was, the, the title of the painting is Red and Orange. And it was an experience of red and orange that I've never had. It was red and orange. And, um, 
Then right behind me, this group of women came in. I could hear them. So I turned around to look. And this one woman turns to the rest of the group and says, oh, there's that one. We have a bigger one of those in Baltimore. <laughs> and then they left. <laughs> Maybe one of them took a picture or something. <laughs> and so, you know, in a way, that same psychological mechanism that's happening in those aesthetic experiences, in those moments where we, you know, do this, um, not only interrupts um, our perception, but it also asks a question of us, which is, do I have to deal with this? And how do I deal with this? You know? So a lot of you who've gone on retreat with me, who've had you know, interesting experiences, um, you know that you know, one of the things, and there's a lot of you in the room, um, one of the things that I'm always after people about when they have you know, big experiences on retreat is, you know, don't make it special, and what are you going to do with it? I mean, how is this going to be integrated in your life? It's not enough to drop acid and feel connected with everything. When you feel connected with everything and you come off the trip, because it's temporary, what are you going to do with that? How are you going to deal with that? And in a way, Patanjali seems to be saying that that actually that experience of having your viewpoint interrupted is a practice in itself. It becomes a practice. It becomes a way of figuring out how to integrate this in your actions of body, speech, and mind. And what I like about this is potentially doesn't just ratchet up some oneness experience and say this is the goal of yoga. He actually takes these experiences and sort of hands them back to you so that you can put them to work. Any questions, comments? There were a lot of comments last week. We went through a thorny part last week. Ronit said to me, is she here? She, she said to me after, she said, when you give a really good Dharma talk, nobody has anything to say. And last week, people were so vocal. <laughs> Thanks, Ronit. <laughs> Any questions, comments, concerns? That's a hard question. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think that, you know, one of the real values of formal practice is that it's like we're exercising a muscle in a certain way, and we're learning how to just notice. You know, the first thing we notice is just our reactivity, our level of reactivity. And one of the nice things about focusing on breathing 
is that just by staying with the, with the breath, eventually a lot of that reactivity starts to just, just settles naturally. I mean, we all know that when we come to sit and we're really invested in something or entangled in something, that, you know, 30 minutes later, whatever it is you were so caught up in really has dissipated. And then maybe you can see it from a few more angles than you could when you were just gripped by it. And so the formal practice has a real practical application in our daily life. Because, first of all, we recognize, even just viscerally, how stirred up we are in ways that maybe we wouldn't if we didn't have a time where we were um, exploring stillness every day. And so, in daily life, um, I think that there shouldn't be any distinction between our practice and our life, so that everything we're doing in our lives is a form of practice. And that means that when... um, difficulty arises and aversion arises in all its many, 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 many forms, um, it sort of gets rolled into the, or it gets brought to the skills we're learning on the cushion or on the yoga mat. But I don't think you should walk down the street with your gaze, um, you know, like so. Like people say, you know, Whenever I get on the subway, I I practice meditation, and that's how I get my 30 minutes in. Don't meditate on the subway. When you're on the subway, just be on the subway. Open up to subway. Don't tune out of subway and try and meditate, you know? Or like when you're in a conversation with someone and you're talking, don't start doing ujjayi breathing. (laughs) Stay connected with your breath, or they'll punch you. So, um, and we know people like this, right? We all know people who, you know, they spent a year at an ashram and they come back and they look, they're always staring into your eyes looking at you kind of funny. (laughs) And, um, you know, it's not natural. It's not natural. So so don't walk around in the day doing your meditation technique. Um, Leave the technique for the formal practice and then use the skill in that practice that you're cultivating to meet your life. Basho says, whatever is needed. You know, sometimes you see this after retreat, you know, someone's had like kitchen karma job, you go to their house for dinner and they're chopping onions, like (laughs) inhaling, lifting the knife, exhaling, you know, and meanwhile their dinner is like, you know, seven hours later and you're all starving. so to be natural, to be natural. And just to bring you back again to the fourth line of the Yoga Sutra, that, um, third line? That um, when the chitta vrittis, when all these nests are not being built moment to moment, um, the dew just settles. And what's left, Patanjali says, tara drashtuhu svarupe avastanam then you can be yourself. Then all that's left is the seer seeing. That seer is you. Michael? Yes? Being on the subway when you're on the subway is fine, but 
we're entering snow pants season, and you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. That's the yeah. The, the being present in those moments, but not you know what I'm saying. Like yeah. how um, yeah. I always look back after those moments. Yeah. <laughs> While I'm kicking myself for having done whatever I did, which was yeah. probably, you know, graceless. How, what, and it's happening, you know, happens over. I'm very, very present in the moment and loud sometimes and yeah. um, not equanimical, I yes. suppose, because the snow pants sure. are Satan. <laughs> yeah. So, techniques to. Yeah, I mean, first of all, let me say that, like, I'm not, I'm not, you know, such an expert on this topic. Like, uh, you brought up snow pants partly because you probably remember that snow pants are my nemesis. You too, And, uh, but, yeah, I mean, now is the time of year where, you know, you can't walk out with your kids wearing shorts and no shirt and bare feet. And uh, so if you know that, you know, one of the difficulties is getting them dressed in the morning. Um... You know, just the first thing to bring to it is to check on your breathing, to see if you're breathing. It's pretty hard to be uptight and breathing. Mm -hmm. And when we get uptight, our kids know that we're uptight, and they do one of two things. They get uptight and anxious, or they start to work on your uptightness to make you anxious. And... um, There might be a third there. I don't know it yet. Um, So when we're breathing and we can give up our viewpoint in that moment, we have to get to school at 9 o'clock. Well, it's possible you have to give that view up. And maybe on that day you're not going to make it for 9 o'clock. And if you don't make it for 9 o'clock, what are the repercussions? Well... Maybe there are repercussions, and maybe we need to explain to our kids that in, if we're late, if you're late for school, then I'm not going to get to my job on time, and people are relying on me. But if you say that to them in two seconds, as fast as possible, <laughs> a high pitch, <laughs> right? It, it doesn't make any sense. So even if you have needs that you need to express for your child to understand why you need to get to school on time that day, how you express it counts for everything. It counts for so much. So, I mean, we could go much, much further. Um, But I think the step that all of us as adults have that young people sometimes don't have is that we're able to stop and see the lens through which we're seeing something. We have this amazing resource called awareness. We always think natural resources are like water and, you know, trees, and they are, but, but awareness is also a natural resource. It's always present. It's always there. Just awareness. And if, you know, postmodernism has taught us anything... It's that in any moment, there are multiple viewpoints. So that's nice philosophy, but can you actually do that? In a moment where you're gripped by agitation because you need to get somewhere, to know that there are seven other 
choices you can make. There are 15 other viewpoints in that situation. And if you can't find the other viewpoint, you need to stop. You need to stop. Um, the word um, devesha um, that we use for uh, aversion um, also means anger. And it's kind of interesting to see how, etymolo- like why etymologically would aversion and anger come from the same root? But actually, we know this, right? We know that aversion pushed just a little bit is anger. So before we're angry about the snow pants, how to stop, find our breathing, and try and recognize some of the different perspectives. And one of the things that I have noticed very unsuccessfully is that when I can stop and breathe, I don't actually need to look for other viewpoints. Actually, other choices just present themselves. And other words show up and I have other ideas and actually it can become kind of funny and a game. And it's amazing how something can switch from a freak out to a game. Um, wow, with one foot in one snow pant, you know, can you try running around the house three times and then we'll put the other one on? <laughs> yeah. My son likes putting on his own pants and underwear, but he doesn't like putting on his own shirt. Yeah? So we have this game where I'm a robot and I'm broken um, because he's hit me over the head with a pillow. And so every time I put on his shirt, we do it six times. The game is like I put on a shirt and I put it on backwards or like I knock him over because I'm a broken (laughs) robot. But the rule is we'll only do it six times and on the seventh time we really put the shirt on. You know, and as an adult, that would not be a fun game. But for him, it's so exciting because he knows that six times we're going to do something really silly, and then on the seventh time, his shirt goes on. Um, so it's interesting that you know when there's a lot of aversion, our creativity is totally diminished because we start getting uptight. And uh, so that's a great question. I mean, your questions are totally related. And the other thing is that um, nobody can tell you how to parent, and nobody can tell you how to do relationship. Nobody can tell you what to say when you most need to know what to say. Um, And so I would like you in the next few weeks, as we're exploring this theme of non-attachment in the next few sentences in the Yoga Sutra, When there's a situation where your back is up, where you're not breathing, where your gaze is intense, um, to contemplate it in terms of non-attachment, but not what the other person should let go of, but what you in that moment...